Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Hopefully everybody's doing well, and I want to start off really quick with you know, I think that a lot of people that are following this podcast, and we've I've gotten a ton of emails, a lot of feedback. You know, people want you know us jumping in and providing them recommendations, and you know, I, I'm trying to keep these short and and sweet and to the point. And I hope that everyone recognizes, you know, I'm running a business. A lot of these guys are running a business, and, and time is short, so we're trying to be uh, to the point. And recently, a couple of them I've gone uh, longer than the the half an hour threshold I've typically set. So I want everyone to just have awareness is, you know, that's the purpose behind it. I want to make sure that we're getting as much content and information out there. The other thing I want to, from a housekeeping standpoint, you know, five-star review and comment would be huge. Continue to promote this, share it with your friends. The more we have involved, the, the larger this grows. Again, the downloads, the volume of downloads that we got are way, way larger than I had thought. This is really becoming a lot more involved than I had originally anticipated. And the last thing I'm going to mention is, Eventually and very soon, we're going to have some advertisers get on board more than likely with the podcast. I wasn't originally going to do that, but because of the time and the effort involved, um, it's probably the path I'm going to go down. So I want to be open about things and just share with you my, my personal opinion on that. And I think it's, it's a good thing. So as we get into this, I've got a new guest on. He hasn't been, been on before. Uh, I've, I've corresponded with him on Instagram. Uh, we've communicated a few times. I think he's an incredibly interesting person. He's from the South. Now, we have Rocky Burris from the South, and I want to have a few more people from the South today give more of an introspective you know, idea of how to approach things. Because again, me being in the North, it's a different eco region. There's different issues that we're running into. And I think the Southern perspective, and we have a ton of Southern listeners, it really kind of gives kind of a broad brush ap approach to things. And I think it's, it's really important we look at it in that manner. So uh, I want to kind of just kind of lead with that. And today's topic, we're going to focus on pine plantations and turkey habitat. And I think those are really timely discussions, either from a harvestability side of things or just the hunting side of things. So I have Mark on the line. And Mark, how are you doing, buddy? I want to introduce you here in a second, but how you how you been? John, thanks for having me on. I've been doing I've been doing well. I'm looking forward to this upcoming turkey season. And I just sent the kids off with my mother-in-law for for the weekend. So I'm 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 doing well. Yeah, so so Mark Haslam's from South Carolina. He has a large property. Uh, he works with other clients in South Carolina and Georgia. You know, you've had a, a monumental award a few years ago. You won the 2020 Al Brothers Award uh, with NDA. That's that's huge. 
big participator. I've actually really followed you mostly because of the deer that you're killing. I think you're doing a great job on your property. You're killing amazing deer in South Carolina. And I know that you do a ton of work. And I really feel like, you know, you've got kind of a, I don't want to say a layman's perspective, but you're actually cutting timber. You know, you're focusing on pine plantation work. You're burning areas and you're really kind of digging into the specificity you need to be successful. And year after year after year, you're harvesting big bucks and managing your herd appropriately. And I, I really think you have a good story to tell in that respect. You know, so let's let's kind of get into the details. Let's talk a little bit about you. Let's talk about the business you started not too long ago and you know what you do professionally. Well, thanks, John. I appreciate that intro. Yeah, I'm um I'm uh I'm in real estate. I've been in real estate for 16 years. Uh, we, my family acquired a farm in South Carolina about 17 years ago. We just wrapped up our 16th deer season and, um, it's been, it was, it's been quite a journey. The reason why we fell onto that property was really, you know, and this is something that if someone's looking to purchase a track of land, we went really, you know, several, several hours where we, from where we live. And really it, it was a sweet spot between major cities, major, major hubs. And so, you know, if, if you can find an area that's between, you know, some major cities, you, you'll notice the price of dirt will dip down um, the further you go from cities. It was a raw piece of land. And over the past six, 17 years, we have just taken our time and um, developed it to, for, you know, wildlife hunting. That was the, the main reason for acquiring it uh, was for recreational use, but it is a tree farm. As like what you said, most of the South, most of the Southeast, a lot of the, a lot of the soil, the highest and best use in today's climate is for growing pine trees, primarily loblolly pine trees. Longleaf is coming back in a resurgence because uh, that was the primary species on the landscape um, before, before, you know, the U S was, colonized and so you know right now if you're looking to buy dirt that's the highest and best use is growing pine trees you're gonna get a better return as opposed to leasing out farming rights or leasing out hunting rights about a year ago i launched southeastwhitetail.com it's an article-based site that I, I, I publish everything myself and then about two months ago i started a podcast um just simply kind of covering what i do at the farm um and so it's not all, all the stuff I've been doing with it is stuff that I've already been doing for years. And what I've been sharing on Instagram, it's just a different outlet for me to be able to uh, showcase what I'm doing. So I've followed your podcast and I've listened to it and it's really professional. So major kudos to you. And I know you've had a couple of good guests on, so I, I think that's great. And uh, you know, I think keep that up and, and I'll be listening. Let's talk a little bit about your farm specifically and you know, what you're doing, you've acquired this farm, you've got many years and you've got a plan and you're executing a plan. Let's kind of break down the landscape a little bit. You know, what are your major vegetation types across that landscape? Uh, I know it's not just pine. I know you, you've probably got some wetter areas. Um, how have you managed that? And, and what does it look like? We are in mid Midwestern um, side of South Carolina. There's some slight rolling hills, you know, it's primarily flat, but there's a lot a little bit of elevation. We've got some wetland systems, creek systems, spring spring fed creeks, and uh, a nice swamp going through it. Primarily, like I mentioned before, it is planted. It's a planted pine plantation, uh, mostly loblollies. We do have some longleaf, 
and we do have a decent amount of hardwoods. Most of our oaks are primarily around um, uh, ag fields, um, hedges, borders, areas like that, uh, because it, it's, you know, in, and some of the bottoms, but we are primarily pine dominated. Uh, yeah. So in, in, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's what we're dealing with. And I know that, I mean, there's definitely a stigma behind pine trees, uh, pine farms, as far as being, you know, uh, absolutely, you know, bad for wildlife, wildlife wastelands and just bad hunting, but there's, you know, it certainly can be. If it's not managed properly, it absolutely can be. But there's so much that you can do to blend, you know, high-level forestry practices to maximize your income on selling your timber, you know, tree crop, and then also maximizing wildlife habitat. I think it's tough because, you know, of course, a de- definitely different perspective up here. A lot of the, I guess we'll we'll call it our pine plantation comparable mm-hmm. is typically Christmas tree farms. And, uh, you know, those can be some, some outstanding habitat for deer if they're managed correctly. They so happen to be Christmas tree farms, which likely have a lot of human intrusion to them. Uh, yeah. But years, years ago, you know, throughout the 40s and 50s and some of the, you know, the, the Roosevelt planting areas uh, prior to that, there was a lot of push in the north to put in different type of pine plantations across the landscape. And, you know, the rotations that we're on in the north are a lot different from, from the south you're looking at 60, 70 year cutting rotations and you know, they're big swaths and eventually those trees, their usable purpose degrades over time. And what I find is, and I, I'm always intrigued by this because you know, aesthetically it's just, it's a horrendous situation. You'll have a 70 or 80 year old stand of, uh, we'll just say uh, spruces and they'll go in and clear cut sections of them and, and they'll do them in sections on a five to eight year annual basis. And those will be kind of, just this destructive type, you know, looking areas and just the regen and the management side of it after the fact kind of goes stall. No one actually does anything after the harvest happens. And that's really kind of where you get into the, you know, degrading benefit. And if you're not doing something after the fact, either mechanically or through spraying, you know, you could have these, you know, larger planted areas in the North and really not reap the benefits of them. So to your point, you know, Mark, I feel like wasteland terminology is only really kind of as a result of how you attack something or manage it. And if you're not prescriptively having a plan after you manage or before you plant, you're not really going to get to the point of having this balance between, I think, this timber focus slash, you know, wildlife focus and and, and trying to balance the two. So because I, I think you can, I, I actually think it's really easy to do. It's, it's much easier in the north in my opinion, but again, I, I'm not as familiar with the South stuff. So let's kind of go into maybe the, some of the strategies that you employ and, and maybe let's work with a stand that you already have. And then maybe let's talk about a planted stand or a future planted stand that, that you're considering and, and how you'd like kind of manipulate it or manage it. So, you know, your spacing's correct, or maybe you have a harvest routine or something along those lines. Sure. Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, the South is definitely a different animal than, than, than most of the country. We have a very, very long growing season. Um, our our green up starts the end of February. Uh, so in our growing season, will go into, I think our first frost usually is about the first week in no- November. So going back to pine trees, uh, loblollies, which is, you know, primarily what most people are growing, grows fast. And so when you plant a stand, it is, um, you know, 
plant a seedling stand, it's going to take anywhere from about one and a half to maybe three years before it gets really dense enough and thick enough for deer bedding. It all depends on the soil. If it's, you know, if it's dark bottomland, bottom type soil, it's going to thicken up very quickly. If it's high ground, sandy soil, it's going to take a little bit longer. But within two to three years, you're going to have quality, high level bedding for deer, good for, you know, some turkey usage and then quail as well. You're going to have all different types of vegetation growing in there, briars, blackberries, a lot of browse. And that's going to last, depending on going back to soil, that's going to last anywhere from maybe six years to upwards of 10 to 12, just depending on the soil and the, the soil type of moisture. That, that stage right there is tremendous to hunt around. You know, that dense bedding, a lot of people overlook that, but, you know, when, when you have that in the landscape, you've got to hunt around it. That's, pri- that's my go-to move early season. Our South Carolina season opens mid-August, and we've got a couple weeks to hunt velvet bucks. But early season when it's hot, I hunt mornings and I hunt right flush up to those young pine stands that are anywhere from a couple years, maybe 10 years old, because you can catch bucks coming back from feeding all night, which is the coolest part of the day. They're going to be out all night and slipping back in a first light to bed. There is a period from about 10 to 12 years until the first thinning, which is going to be about year 15, roughly. And at a certain point, the canopy is going to close in and the, and the ground vegetation is going to start to disappear because the canopy is shading out the light. At that point, you're going to lose a lot of that browse, a lot of that thick, d- dense vegetation, and you can see right through the bottom. That's when the deer stop bedding in it, and you're going to have several years. It could be three, five, six years of there's really not much going on. You can burn it, but the burning's not going to do much because you can, you're not getting any sunlight. Around 15 years or so, you can do your first thinning, and um, after that first thinning, you're going to have some ground disturbance from the machinery. That'll help, but you can start burning. You know, after that first thinning, a lot of people will do will do a second thinning, maybe a third thinning. Just depends on aesthetically what you want to accomplish with your farm. But we like to do prescribed fire. We're in about a three-year rotation on blocks. We cut the farm up in different sections, and we burn each section once every three years. And so once you do that first thin, it is. It will be quality deer habitat and uh, ground nesting birds, turkeys, quail. When you uh, thin it, open the canopy up, expose the sunlight, disturb the ground, and disturb that native seed bank through prescribed fire. Now, where a lot of people go wrong, and you know, everyone's on a different playing field. Most of the South is private land. And so a lot of what I'm talking about is going to apply more towards the individual landowner or maybe your leasee and you lease land that maybe you can do some of this work on. Um, a lot of timber, timber companies do own massive tracts of pine, of pine plantations, and some of those timber companies may or may not be doing any of this. But you've got to diversify your age class of pine trees. If you have a monoculture, of really just pine trees, all the same age class, you're going to run, run into problems. Because if you have one massive clear cut and you clear cut everything in the property, well, 
when you replant, you're going to have excellent bedding, but then it's going to be tough to actually see the deer because it all because you've got one big, massive bedding site. So what we've done over time is really what I like to call checkerboard the property. And it is primarily pine trees, but we'll, we would clear cut sections that might be five acres or 10 or 15 or up to 50 acres. Clear cut that. And, you know, you might clear cut a section a couple hundred yards away and almost, you know, create a mosaic checkerboard type property where you've got bedding sites and then you've got the open pines that are thinned and burned. You've got the bedding and then right adjacent to it, you've got uh, natural, natural food plots. And that, uh, yeah. And, and that, and so when you, and then when you start dive into it, you talk about creating bedding. I mean, you can, you can design, you can take a, a couple hundred acre farm and design where you want the deer to bed. And what I like to do is really create a hub in the middle of the property, depending on your neighbors and what your neighbors <clears throat> farms look like. But by, by thinning pine trees, you know, you can create the bedding and you can put it where you want it to be. And then of course you got food plots, but that's, um, that I think is, is probably the number one factor when you're working with a pine farm, a tree farm is to, you know, create the bedding exactly where you want it. Mark, I've got a question. So you've got this layout and this checkerboard philosophy. And of course, you know, that pertains based on the site layout. And, you know, assuming that it's a monoculture, basically, and then you're going to have some various age species. So you may not clear cut everything. You may get in this 15 year rotation. And of course, you're going to get growth in those areas that are cut. Now, when you're talking about replanting, potentially, or allowing it just to, you know, eventually jump into the next seral stage of, of life and, you know, go from the grasses to the shrubs to the trees, are you managing in between that or are you replanting those areas? How are you looking at, you know, your specific landscape? What suggestions do you have for individuals trying to make these changes like you're, you're doing? Because there's, there may need to be a return on investment after a clear cut and focusing on the next you know, age generation of loblolly or, or what have you, pines that you, you want to have employed in those particular areas? Yes. So what we like to do is we will, once we complete a clear cut, yep. uh, cutting, cutting a section, well, depending on the time of year, we will go in and, um, and spray it and kill off the vegetation um, and then replant the next dormant season. So if... We've got uh, we've got some cuts that we're hoping hoping to get it completed this spring and summer. If that happens, then late summer we'll go and spray spray the clear cut, kill off everything, and then we'll go to replant. Um, we'll go to replant um, in so sometime between January and February of next year. So um, l- let me just ask you another strategy decision. You, you talked about having this this bedding hub. And, and people thinking smaller scale, sometimes a bigger scale, depending on how much landscape you, you own, property you own. Um, if you had a 20-acre parcel, per se, and you had good access around the edges, and you have this hub style set up, and maybe, you know, off those hubs, multiple hubs of clear-cut areas within this pine stand, giving yourself kind of a, available uh, food, forage, bedding, those, those type of examples. Are you doing any of, of that other than just 
you know, clear-cutting sections and managing those sections? Do you, do you have any, like, kind of micromanaged smaller areas that you may have maybe a slightly different prescription and maybe you're giving a little bit more space to the deer based on those, you know, lined or road trees that are in between maybe hunting areas? Any recommendations in, in that respect? Yeah, um, it. Uh, if someone had a 20-acre farm, I, I, I would I would probably take – maybe even like five, maybe like, maybe, maybe five acres. I mean, I, I think to answer your question, you know, a lot of it answer that doesn't really answer the question is that it depends. Um, I, a lot of what I do from our, at our farm is we've got some ag fields and we've got some larger food plot fields and some smaller kill, kill plots. And so when I'm laying out clear cut sections some of that will absolutely depend on the food plots, the destination food plots. Sure. And, you know, laying out, you know where they're going to bed. And, and, and when I say that, you know, deer in the south, they can bed anywhere. If you've got a thicket of briars alongside of a dirt road in your property, they might be bedding there. Um, but the clear cut, the thickets is what they prefer. So if you have your destination food plots a lot, I, I like to try to create – just a natural flow that they feel safe and comfortable. And, and, and that's, that's a major factor of what, when I'm laying out a site or thinking about the next cut or what I'm playing for food plots or burning is how to make the deer, deer feel the most comfortable as far as safety. We have so much pressure down here, hunting pressure and our season, you know, South Carolina, for instance, has a, unless something's changed, has the longest, deer season in north america starts august 15th and goes all the way to uh january 1st sure so you know a lot of a lot of it is just you know making the deer giving them best habitats as possible to feel safe and feel comfortable moving from the bedding to the destination food source some people will you know lay down some trees hinge cut i've done some of that in some sections where i've had a lot of sweet gum trees or, or some other trash trees that just offer no benefits. And I've found that deer really aren't using those hinge cut sites all that much. In our area, they prefer young pine thickets or swamps and, and bottomland. Um, it's just, and it makes sense because those are areas where humans don't want to go. And those are areas where, you know, a lot of predators don't want to go because it's thick and nasty. Yeah, and I also think the ability to thermoregulate. I mean, that's probably one of the largest things that they have to contend with is, you know, trying to stay cool. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, some of the structure, at least on the ground, doesn't necessarily give them, maybe give them physical protection. So the difference between hinge cutting gives them some physical separation, but they have the density of cover to create some of that already. And obviously audible, if something's coming in an area like that, the likelihood of being detected is a lot higher based on that stem density in those areas. Because of course, like you said, like the way the, the black gum or sweet gum grows in those areas and, and the, the, the briars that, that result can really be just, you know, very protectionary. And then of course, overhead cover from the standpoint of, you know, limiting the, uh, the heat impact is, is, is probably really critical in that example, you know, not having experience designing in the South, I've kind of wondered you know, a lot about like how you manage the the vegetation and, and specifically your growing seasons are so long. It's kind of tough for me to, 
you know, even understand that because, you know, it, we have such a shorter growing season. You know, I'm right around in most cases, you know, 110 to 125 day growing season in the areas that I'm working with. I can really routinely draw like my planting times and, you know, there's a subset of species that do really well from a, a actual physical planning standpoint. Food plot re- regimes are, are pretty, you know, pr- pretty particular. I don't have issues with, with drought, you know, in a lot of areas that I'm working with. So there's there's a lot of things that make, you know, some of the atmosphere in the areas that I work a little easier. And, you know, when it comes to managing pine plantations and then, you know, these burn rotations and that flush set of growth that you get afterwards. And of course, you know, droughts you're experiencing, you know, how do you contend with all that? Like it, to me, it's, it's a little bit mind blowing because your eco region is so much different. Somebody from the North or even somebody from the Midwest coming to your area. I don't see how they can necessarily really understand, you know, the impact. Like I have a winter severity index that I measure every day and it's snowing right now in upstate New York. And those are the things that I care most about. You're dealing with with, with drought. I mean, that tends to be a, an issue in the South. So how do you just, just contend with that in the landscape? What, what's your what's your process behind that? Oh, one thing, Mark, I want to add is it is smart that the property that you have does have water sources on it. And of course, that, that helps to benefit the adjacent plants. So that's that's a huge thing. Absolutely, yeah. It... it, it um... The South, yeah, I mean, the South is brutal. And so our, the most stressful time of year for us down here is the summer. It's not the winter. I mean, I, it's amazing that y'all have, that you're dealing with snow right now. You know, we had snow that stuck to the ground like descent by January, January of 2018. And the last time that we really had snow stick to the ground, I think was 88 um, so, I mean, you know, of course, you know, it'll sleep every, every now and then, but I'm talking about real snow right. sticking to, stick to the ground. So, you know, what we're primarily dealing with as far as stress is going to be the summer period and it's heat, you know, heat, insects, yeah, parasites, all that stuff. Um, however, that time of year, they should have, deer should have some great vegetation, you know, succulent, um, good, you know, forage and browse for the deer, but at the same time, that's, you know, that's, you know, peak when does are giving birth to fawns and then they're, you know, trying, trying to produce milk. So it, it's, um, there's a lot going on. I was actually having a conversation with Dr. Marcus Lashley with the University of Florida recently. We were talking about something um, that he brought up that it's kind of a rabbit hole that I, I want to dive into at some point with some research, but it's, it's, it's the heat index and, you know, how much cooler thinned and open pine stands are as opposed to real dense cover. And the fact that, you know, it, 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 it's – he had brought up a study that um, – it, it's a uh, study the, of the heat affecting cow, cow's milk production and how that, you know, the heat can actually affect – you know, mother mother does milk production. So the answer to your question is really it's just trying to give deer the best cover and the best food on your property year-round. And um, in my opinion, the best bang for your buck is going to be prescribed fire without question. Sure. Um, and, you know, we plan uh, warm season food plots, we're actually, you know, trying, try, trying to wrap up those plans now, 
trying to get those in the ground, you know, pending weather over the next probably 30, 45 days. And then we'll start planting cool season food plots uh, sometime in late October to get us through the winter. And, you know, thankfully we've got some swamp systems, some, some creeks and um, some of our, some of our pine stands are a little bit lower and we have some ditches and there are ways when you, where you can manipulate ditches to hold water, you know, maybe create a little watering hole pan, but, it, but if you could find some lower areas in your property, go in there and dig it out a little bit, that can help. Um, but you know, if, if you don't have water in your property, there's not a whole lot you can do, but just to try to give deer the most natural foods as possible. And in my opinion, prescribed fire, I mean, it's, it's, you know, Matt Ross with the NDA from your home state just put out an article on deerassociation.com about uh, what deer actually eat. I think it came out yesterday. I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing. They have to eat like, it's like six to 8% of their body weight every single day. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you've got a pine farm and the food that you're manipulating on the landscape is just food plots or ag fields or supplemental feeders, you, you, that's, you know, you're not maximizing really what you can do. So um, I, 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 so you've kind of brought up a couple, two design points that actually flow into things that I'm, I'm focusing now. So I build on properties. I lay out swales across yeah. train features and water collection, uh, water retention type um, ideas, which is very similar to kind of what you just started getting into. And one of the things just ideology wise, you know, again, if you're allowing the water to proliferate and flow across a larger landscape scale in combination with burning and managing those plants likely related or in those small microclimates are certainly going to benefit. So like you suggested, ditching or providing, you know, these, these streamways, so to speak, from those original sources, expanding those waterways to kind of interact in a, a larger distance or a longer distance beyond, uh, you know, the original stream could be really beneficial to, to the plant life adjacent and can be a, a highly attractive food source that doesn't need to be replanted on an, an annual basis. So I think that's really one good concept you laid out. The other thing is the metabolic state. So, you know, Matt Ross's uh, recommendation or, I, I, you know, concepts of, you know, the deer's diet is the deer always need to consume something, right? There's always a food source demand. And of course, if you have a heat severity issue going on, you know, their calories are still going to be burning up at the, the same rate. And again, pressure, a whole large plethora of things impact, you know, their calorie burn beyond their, you know, basal state, uh, basal metabolic state. And those are the situations where you want to have, you know, good overhead canopy and to, to eliminate the heat severity index across the landscape. I think, I think those are real like drastic differences you're dealing with because I don't have the 
same indices on in, in my landscape that I'm dealing with. And I think it's it's kind of another feature. There's another concept um, that, that I work work on with, with clients. It's called agroforestry and, and managing, you know, forest settings in open field settings and trying to eliminate evapotranspiration of plants. So the plants themselves are are more nutritious, so to speak, because they have more water content. So there's there's some strategies that, that I work on uh, when I'm doing field conversions, et cetera, and, and again, I don't know the application for the South, but of course, you know, shade leads to, you know, more of water availability in some cases, uh, et cetera, on the ground. So I think those are important things to consider when you're kind of, you know, looking at these landscape designs. And I, I find it extremely interesting. It's totally out of my, my expertise to know what to recommend in the South because, again, I, I don't work there. So let's, let's bump over. I, I think we hit a, a bunch of interesting topics. Let's bump over to turkeys because it's turkey season right now. And, and a lot of Absolutely. people are, are hunting and I know that, you, you know, you said burning and, and obviously that, that probably provides some attraction value. But how are your, your properties set up in the pine plantations for turkey hunting? What are you doing special? Well, um, yeah, the, tur- the turkey situation, we, we, we've been really trying to hone in on for the, the last five years. And, you know, a lot of what you do for white-tailed deer benefits, you know, quail and turkey and other ground nesting birds um we have had a lot of luck the past probably five years planting chufa um chufa is highly attractive for turkeys uh they create the little you plant them in the you plant the summer june july and then um it'll last it can last a couple years depending on how the turkeys um if they if they can destroy the plants but they end up uh, digging up the little tubers mm. that grow um, that grow in the soil underneath. Um, but if you maintain it and you fertilize it and you spray for weeds in, in the following summer, it can last a couple of years. Uh, turkeys, if you have two for planted, and it might not t- it might not take that much. We've had some luck just taking some strips or some field edges and planting some tree on it. Um, and turkeys will come in that chufa pretty much every single day. And they're going to scratch, and they're going to dig up those chufa, I mean, those little tubers. That helps. If you have hogs, if someone has wild pigs in the property, that might be a problem. Thankfully, we don't have wild pigs in the area. I do, I do like to hunt them, but wild feral pigs are just devastating to food plots and ag fields. And they just destroy chufa. Uh, that helps. Planting other different blends, food plot seed for wild birds help. Burning is probably the number one habitat improvement you can do for wild turkeys. You know, when you have that clean slate burn, a thin pine plantation, it, it is just excellent habitat for those uh, hens to bring the pulse in and be able to feed. Uh, especially if you can put the burn site right on top of a young pine thicket to where you've got good nesting cover for hens to nest. And then they can just cross, cross the road and go right in that burn stand and bring their poults to walk over there and feed. There's actually been some studies recently that, that Dr. Mike Chamberlain, who's the leading wild turkey biologist was saying that of, of, of recent burn sites of how predators do not use them and they do not go in them. Um, that's something that I think they're working on right now, but those are 
primarily what we're doing is just burning more, planting chufa, and letting the birds breed first. So a lot, you know, there's been an ongoing trend of the population of eastern wild turkey declining over the past easily decade, if not longer. And, and a lot of that goes to just poor nesting sites. And some hens, some hens are better. You've got dominant hens that know how to breed and know how to, how to raise a nest and where to put nest. And there's some hens that just, you know, lay a nest in really bad sites. Um, but what the biologists are saying now, and this is what we're seeing in a lot of DNR agencies, is that they're pushing the start dates back of the turkey season a little bit to let these toms breed first. And so um, we've had some luck for a couple of years of really not harvesting birds, letting them breed. And what the buyers are saying now is to, if you can, at least in our area of the South, if you can let the birds breed first and then about 90, it's like, it's like 95% of the birds should be bred by April 10th. And if you can just let them breed first and then, you know, hunt them then and then kill them then at that point. Uh, but some of these seasons that, oh, that, 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 that open up so early, you're actually killing them before they can breed. I love that you have your own practice and strategy and that's working to your advantage on your own property. It's, it's awesome. Like that is, that is beyond, uh, you know, intelligent and well thought out. I want to bring you back to another point because we're talking about nesting sites and, you know, originally and, and what those kind of look like on the landscape and how you're managing those. So you got these areas that you clear cut and I'm not sure you're leaving debris or not. I don't know if you leave tops, um, how do those look like and how do you manage those to keep them in kind of a state where they're being used more frequently, at least, you know, from your design standpoint? I know that's part of the critical infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And then obviously the brooding habitat that you brought up earlier with it, with the, uh, you know, management of the burning, like what what's your strategy there? Because I don't hear a lot of people talk about that. And I, I think it's really important to think more about those nesting sites and, you know, how to have the right structure and the, well, whatever the right location may be, you know, that may be variable, but trying to develop that on your landscape. What's your perception on that? Well, you know, um, nowadays there's very little, you know, site prep that you really need to do after you clear cut um, a stand of pine trees. Some people might really, you know, spend the extra money and have it just cleaned up very, very fine like. But truth is, you don't need to. Um, you can leave, you know, you, you can leave some debris in the ground, some limbs, some tops, and just go right over it, whether it's a machine planter or if it's hand planted, and just go right through it and plant it with, you know, pine seedlings. Uh, of course, depending on the time of year, you definitely want to spray and kill off the vegetation. Um, but uh, that's really about it. You know, you might, over the first year or two, you might have some, some hardwood encroachment and maybe you want to spray spray then but there's really not a whole lot you do you know of course it all depends on your soil if you have any type of encroachment but there's really not a whole lot you do once you plant those plant those seedlings uh, because it, at a certain point the wild wally pines grow so fast yeah. that they're going to outcompete everything else that's why I, you don't really do a whole lot some people might bush hog um, between the rows of pine trees early on, but you don't really need to do it. I mean, I, 
that depends on what you want to do. But if, but if you're bush hogging through that, you're you're just wiping out the nesting cover and the bedding cover. And a lot of what we do is we take the loading decks. Oh, this is what we've done. If someone doesn't have you know fields or, or, or food plots established, after you have those 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 clear cuts or those thinnings, clean up the loading decks and clean them up best you, as you can and plant those in food plots. Sure. Um, that's that's been wonderful to us. And then we'll do a lot of uh, early successional disking. Maybe we'll take some you know skidding trails, fire breaks, and. Um, uh, anytime, you know, December through about maybe the you know, end of March, just lightly disc it, break up the soil. And those can just be killer food plots, um, little strips here and there around the property for, you know, deer, turkey, and quail. So, you know, to answer your question, there's really not a whole lot you need to do unless you have some encroachment, like I said, on some hardwoods coming in or some other type of invasive that you need to get out of your uh, pine stand. It could be kudzu. We don't really have a whole lot of kudzu in our area, but there's not really that much. You know, I, I asked this question to, to a Dr. Mike Chamberlain about, is there anything that, that we do for white-tailed deer that could actually be detrimental or, or, or could potentially not be in favor for the wild turkey? And he gave me a, a, little, a little quick example, and that is, because I, I brought up edge feathering to him. Sure. And that, you know, if you have a field food plot and there's, and, there's a, and there's a deer feeding and a coyote steps out, you know, if that field that is, is laid out well and you've got good edge feathering or, or a thick staging area, that deer is going to take off and be out of sight and be, you know, hidden within, you know, seconds. And that deer will win because the coyote's not going to go in it, for, you know, most likely. But if it's turkey at the field, and a coyote steps out, and it's the same type of setup, turkeys need to see. And so when they're running in that, that, in that, in that thick area, it could be bad for the turkey because they need to be able – their first line of fence is to run. And if they can't see too well, if it's too thick, it could be a problem for them. It's trying to escape like a coyote as opposed to a lot larger and more agile, agile uh deer that can just kind of zip through things. So that is something to, you know, to consider as far as, you know, turkey habitat, but, you know, there's really, with that, it's, I, I, I don't really know how I would change any of my setups on ag fields or, or food plots. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I think the Chamberlain example that you brought up with having, I guess the correct volume of space, distance, left to right, north, south, whatever the case may be, from a visual standpoint, that may be slightly different from an implementation tactics you may have, you know, when you're designing food plots, you know, for, for whitetails specifically. So I think I think that's important because I think those strut zones, uh, those feeding zones, and thinking about, you know, how that bird escapes, you know, across that landscape and giving them yeah. the, the most advantageous route out of there and visual advantage because I've watched foxes in, in our areas, you know, red fox go after turkeys. I've seen this time and time again. Not not so much coyotes, uh, but a lot of times foxes, just the speed of the fox and its ability to, to prey an animal. Um, these are regular edge features that I'm creating in, in some of the areas. That they can be quite detrimental to their escape routes. And close edge feathering could be problematic, right? Not having uh, transparent 
transparency, you know, where they can escape in through, you know, kind of those line of trees. A lot of people, heavy uh, hinge cut areas or create just a lot of dense cover along those edges, not allowing the animal to get away. So it's, it's thinking a little bit about kind of that design setup and, and where they're going to be. And obviously there's, there's really no perfect probably solution to this, but really kind of a good, good perspective on things. I like your suggestion with the disking, definitely like a free food plot uh, source. And of course you're going to probably use those as, as uh, you know, lines of protection for your burning anyhow. So it, it kind of adds that whole uh, benefit there and uh, segregation of, of, of certain areas. So definitely good example. Uh, Mark, anything you want to end on the podcast, anything that's been really kind of burning that you think people need to have awareness of? I think you've given a, a bunch of really good examples here in explaining, you know, how you manage pine plantations. And then I love that we're talking about turkeys right now because it, it's really kind of paramount this time of year. Anything you want to talk about yourself, um, either your business or something that, that's on your mind? No, I mean, just that, you know, um, just that, you know, kind of circling back to what we talked about initially is that you know pine farms i mean it, it it's it's exactly what the term says i mean it, it's a farm and you're growing a timber crop and so you know that's what's paying the bills that's what's you know that's that's how you can keep the farm and if you want to pass your farm down to the next generation or your grandkids one you've got to have a plan and you know, what I would start off with doing is just getting with your forester or getting with someone that knows uh, the business and getting a, a, a value of your standing crop and then getting a plan as far as the current value of the crop you have right now. And then, and then get a five-year plan and get a 10-year plan and try to loosely map out when are you going to cut and what you're going to cut. And then you can project your future income. And so when I talked about, you know, checkerboarding property and clear cutting sections and creating bedding, that's something that like it will keep me up at night because I don't you don't want to create bedding when you're when you already have, have lost it. You want to constantly create new bedding, whether you clear cut a site and let it grow up wild for maybe three or five years and then burn it or just bulldoze it or bush hog or start over again. You want to constantly be creating because it can take a couple of years to get quality bedding. And then that way, you're also producing income, which will help pay for the farm on more of a consistent basis. So, you know, if you're clear cutting or thinning sections once every 10 or 20 or 30 years, you're going to have major gaps where you don't have cash flow coming in. And you're also going to have, you're not going to have the best huntability. So, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, but um, there's a way that you can blend it where you, where you, 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 you're maximizing your income and you've got more frequent checks coming in from the timber sales, but then also you've got incredible hunting. And the last thing I would mention, going back to the Eastern wild turkey, I mean, you know, if, if there's anything that should be on, 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 on someone's radar for conservation, in the South or anywhere where the Eastern wild turkey species exists is what can you do as a landowner? Or if you lease land, what can you do to better the habitat? The numbers have been on, on the decline. Think about, you know, think about when, when breeding is and maybe what you can do. Anybody can do to help that species because turkey hunting has, has been booming for a while now as far as popularity and um, the biologists are out there 
speaking, they're researching data, but I just don't know if everyone it I don't know if I don't know if it's on everyone's radar as far as what's going on. Yeah. Um with that with that animal. So that's really it. I, you know, I, I appreciate you having me on and, and I, and I very much enjoyed following your content. Yeah, Mark. Well, thanks, man. So I just wanted, so everyone get, get a touch with you. What's, what's the best way to get a hold of you if they, if they want you to come out and do work or prescription, anything you got going on, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, that's way you can find me on Instagram. It's at Mark Haslam. And you can also go to southeastwhitetail.com or uh, at southeast.whitetail. Um, so you can look me up. I'd be happy to talk with anybody. And um, that's, um, I, I can, I love talking deer. <laughs> well, that's good because you're a deer killer and it's really important. Uh, so I appreciate your perspective. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for contributing. Hopefully we can have you on again. We can talk about specific projects you got going on, maybe even food plots for that example, because I think you gave some good examples today and maybe even get more into your layout specifics and the things that keep you up at night. Because, of course, your focus on this stuff has led to a lot of success. And, you know, you're certainly sharing that with other people. And I think it's really critical and, and happy to have the fact that you have another podcast, which I would say, please go listen to Mark's podcast. It's great. And, uh, you know, thanks for listening to ours. So I think that's it for me, man. Thanks for being on. Hey, Sean, I appreciate it. You have a good weekend. All right, you too. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Thanks. Right. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com. Thank you.